listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez, and before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Or should I say the guy? <laughs> they all left. <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, we've got some guys here. We've got over here on my right, we've got Mr. Bobby Osinski. Hey, Mike. And, hey, everybody. Uh, Hi. Hi, Bobby. Joining us from uh, New York City is Mr. Rob Arbiter. Hello, hello, everyone. Rob, it's good to see you, brother. Good to see you guys, too, even if it's over Skype once again. I know. You had to pick the week when I'm out of town. I know, I know. Well, hey, listen, this is episode number 176, 177. Yeah, it's one, it's one, it's what, 170s, what yeah, it's right. A one, anyhow, we're going to have to figure out how we're going to name these things. But um, we're here over at uh, Loki Sonic Studios, and uh, today we are honored to have as our guest Mr. Paul Ill. Hello, everyone. Um, and uh, Paul is a bass player. He's played with Pink and Christina Aguilera and uh, Courtney Love and is also um, one of the principals here over at the Loki Sonic Studios. And this is a cool place. And, and Bobby actually set this up. So thank you, Bobby, for uh, setting us up here. And it's great. It's a rehearsal hall. It's a recorded studio. It's a little bit of everything. This is, you know what? You can't come to a place like this and not feel like rock and roll. I mean... I just I just want to jump on these drums and start banging afterwards. You know, I mean, it's just it's so cool. Well, it's we can so- thank Mar- Mark Orenberger, our other studio partner, for the drums. They're an early '70s, uh, fully restored Gold Sparkle uh, Ludwig drum set that is incredibly popular with uh, our friends here and our clients. And ironically, we've been doing a lot of video lately. This is the third video shoot in a row. There have been more videos here at Loki Sonic Studios than there have been um, bands rehearsing or recording sessions in the last seven days. Well, that's cool. Well, it's a great place, and I can see why. And this is like this reminds me of of you know uh, of the old uh, rehearsal spaces that you used to go to back in the uh, back in the nineties. You know, and uh, you you camp there and you live there for days. SIR SIR in New York. Um, I don't know if you guys ever were to like to the the Midtown. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, we're, we'd literally live there for months at a time, and it's it was a it's rooms like this. It's like if you were a musician, you were touring back in the day, you you go from one room to another room, you know. But um, thank you so much for uh, for having us here on the podcast. Well, and, thank uh, you for joining us. And everybody else is just missing out. <laughs> Actually. All of everybody who can't make it, they're all busy. It's like I know Scott's busy. I know I know Bobby's busy. He's getting ready to leave. I know Brandon and and Nick. So um, good for them. Uh, bad for for us. But uh, <laughs> but you know what? It's going to be a great podcast. There's a lot to talk about. Um, we're going to visit with uh, with with Paul, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff uh, on the on the second half of the podcast. But right now, I want to talk about a few things. And um, right off the bat. I went and saw the most amazing show that I've seen in a long time. I went and saw Disney ba- on Ice. No, I said amazing. <laughs> I went and saw Baby Metal. I don't know if you guys, if you remember, uh, I talked about it. That's the J-pop and heavy metal band. Oh yeah, I right, played right, the right. video. Yeah. Oh my gosh, they were so incredible live. I mean, 
they were so incredible live. Well, after it eight just, years at J-Pop University, they should be good. It was so good. And the band was tight. And you know what was great about that about the show? Other than um, they were just the music was amazing. It was it was a flashback. It was an old old school show, meaning there wasn't any video production. There wasn't any type of of you know sets that were going crazy. It was a backdrop. It was three risers, and it was a band. The and the drummer was probably on a riser, eh, maybe a, two feet up. And this is at the Wiltern, and they rocked the place. Why and don't you get your uh, your viewers up to speed about what J-pop is if somebody has dropped in and they don't know what J-pop means? Uh, it's Japanese pop. Yeah, but but like what, what that entails. A bunch of cute girls singing, <laughs> 18, 16, and 15-year-olds, and, and it was, it's very melodic, and it's, it's a combination. It's like if you put the monkeys and Black Sabbath together. I mean, it's, it's, it's these two opposite forms that should not work, and they work really, really well. Now, Paul used to play with Peter Tork. Really? And yeah. toured Japan, actually, and kind of went through that. Right, but I'm not a J-pop star. I'm, I'm a little outside the, the demographic. Um, my experience with that whole community uh, as of recent is that the cross-media marketing is pretty phenomenal, meaning that sometimes there's a video game attached to it or, or to a particular band or a particular brand of clothing. Mm-hmm. There'll be pop-up stores and stuff like that. Uh, when I was in Japan long ago and far away on a planet called 1981, when I went there with Peter Tork, uh, they did pop-up stores for Peter in, in the malls. We did 14 shows at Kosanikan Hall and uh, in 12 days. Wow. And our audience was 90% female, 12 to 14 years old. The Monkeys TV show was number one in the ratings. It was as big as Family Ties was in the States at that time. And Peter was the only monkey that had a functional band at the time. So it <laughs> That's was a funny statement right there. It was the only, well, the I mean, monkey. Davy Jones was came over to 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 do stuff while Peter was there because yeah. of the resurgence. What happened was is um, Pleasant Valley Sunday, the Monkees version of it, the Carol King song was used as a Kodak commercial, and it just blew up. Oh, is wow. that what it was? And then and yeah, and then and then what happened? We would do a pop up signing for the Peter and the band at a at a, at a Japanese mall. And they would, the fans would pay to get an 8x10 uh, signed, and it was cash. And the promoters and, and Peter's manager would walk out of the mall, the pop-up that we would put up at a mall, right. with dive bags full of cash. I bet. You know, I I, I'm not kidding. Dive they, bags. You know, it was amazing. The, the merch over at the Baby Metal concert. The line was huge. It was the longest line I've ever seen. Who was the audience? Um, I'll tell you, that's one of the things I want to talk about. The, it was a cross-class of audience. You saw guys that were Black Sabbath. You saw, you saw, you know. Really? Yeah, you saw hardcore fans all the way to little girls that dressed up like the, um, like the singers. It's, it's amazing. The, the baby metal phenomena has, they have all this, um, like you were saying, there's a backstory and they have all this mythology that they, that they have, but essentially it's just these really infectious melodies with really great, phenomenal metal players. I mean, these guys are so good. And if you know, um, I've toured Japan a couple times, the Japanese do things the right way. They are so well prepared. If you look on the stage, um, first of all, their touring rigs made a lot of sense. It was basically a couple Kemper heads per guitar player. <laughs> and then it was, um, it was, uh, uh, Marshall 412. 
and then the the bass player he was playing a uh, it looked like a mark bass rig and um and that was it and they're all set up and everything was just dialed in and whenever i go to a show i can always tell how good stuff is dialed in by the first song because you know touring the first song is usually when everybody's like and you know and everybody's trying to get their trying to get their monitors and man these guys jumped in and they hit it and they hit it hard and it was just it was phenomenal was it was the backup band is is baby metal the the brand for one entity one artist is it like four or five female singers up front with three it's three female singers it's actually one female singer with two they call them hype girls mm-hmm. they they yeah, do a little singing girls. but mainly they do a yeah. lot of dancing dancing yeah. and and she was phenomenal it was amazing it was and the place rocked and and literally there was moments where there was just goosebumps it was so good and what was so great is there was no you didn't rely on the video and the sets i mean they just came in old school just they just nailed it and they did a great job and it was really phenomenal were they singing in, in english or japanese japanese Japanese. so i have i had no idea what they what they said but it was it was it was amazing and if you ever they're gonna be huge because the concert was sold out tickets were ridiculously expensive 500 bucks 600 bucks a ticket you know why people. did you go i went because i love their music and i just had to i had to see i had to see them live and the bass player plays this he's a six-string bass player um I actually looked him up. He's this phenomenal, you know, um, player that that's influenced by all these jazz guys, and he plays a six string bass, and he plays the bejeebies out of it. It's so good. He, he's just he's rolling on this on this bass, and and he was doing stuff. It, it's just so good. If, I can't recommend them enough. If you ever get a chance to see Baby Metal, you're turning into a fourteen year old. I know it's, it's so. It's, what that's is good? Well, I, and I, I see shows, and that one just blew me away. My question then is, what is the prime? Uh, medium of delivery for baby metal like I'm, I'm thinking here we are gathered for this podcast and we're you know we've got a, a plethora of subjects we could be talking about and I'm fascinated that this is, is this is our, our lead in it, what is their primary means of delivery like what is well the, I'll tell you, you, you what, can, what I mean you? by this very specifically is what idiom is the fan having the most direct relationship with J-pop and a metal J-pop well fan? with baby are metal are they listening to the mp3s on YouTube are they watching the videos 43 million um, plays on uh, give me chocolate so that's that's not that many that's well that's that's a lot more than <laughs> zero and no, but, really, but the other thing too 50 million you have a minor hit really 50, yeah 50, well but you know what they played the will turn so they're not exactly yeah. huge yet so but, wait so but, hold on a minute so let's think about this i just saw widespread panic at the will turn not 500 dollars a ticket but adoring fans they're sold out yeah right and and like high demand and this is their worst market i'm not suggesting that widespread panic is a better purchase for j-pop but why does somebody spend 500 dollars for an experience how long does the experience last oh it was about 90 minutes right okay yeah, it was widespread was, panic is four hours and there wasn't even a, there wasn't even an open act right um but no it was opening act for widespread panic but it was either. it was it was pretty phenomenal and they they're they're gonna be huge they're gonna be bigger they played they've already played wimbley and they've played um the, ah, so uh, they're bigger in in the UK than they are here. Oh yeah, it's it's a phenomenon that that's that's spreading. So is it experiential? What I'm trying to get at is what is the fan the the the, the base demographic is 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 a female in junior high or high school probably right? No, they oh. had a mosh pit. 
I thought, literally, it was when I say it was cross generational. It really was. So people, was, the, the the base ticket price was five hundred dollars. No, no, the base ticket price was just your normal ticket. You know, forty, fifty bucks. Okay. Oh, the scalpers after, are getting the close. aftermarket. Yeah. Was was? Oh, you mean the scalpers uh, were getting five hundred bucks? Yeah, and, okay. and you couldn't jump in. Right. You couldn't jump in for less than two hundred dollars. I know that for a fact. So it was. So by jump in, what does that mean? If I would have buy want, a ticket, I couldn't have bought a ticket when the day they were announced. Was it a Live Nation? Well, show? you probably can, but but by the time you know a week or for a week out or so. Rob, where do you stand on J-pop? <laughs> <laughs> I am. Uh... <laughs> I'm somewhere in the middle between pro and anti. I've heard it. I've listened to it a bit. Mike played it for me. And I mean, there's not enough caffeine in the world to have me like speed up my brain enough to be able to process it. It's kind of uh, aggressively way too cutesy, popish. I mean, I understand there's an audience for it. I've heard other people talk about how big it is. I didn't realize they're actually even playing places as big as the Wiltern. So, uh, it is getting some acceptance, but it's not anything I would ever choose to listen to unless a judge sentenced me to it, I think. <laughs> well, hey, is there, is there an anime compliment to this particular band? I, you know what? Do they have, do they I, have their own graphic I, novels I, yet? I, I don't know. I well, don't that's the whole, how did you discover them? I, I don't even really remember, to be perfectly honest. I think I was, I was reading something. It's cause I, I, it was last year sometime, and I was reading something, and... Um, and I, I read about this combination of, of metal and J-pop. And to me, that kind of stuff really excites me when I hear weird things like that. So I'm like, okay, let's check them out. And then I heard this song, and I was like... And you were hooked. I was blown away. Because it was so smart. It was The arrangement was so smart. It was so poppy, and the, and the melody was such, had such a great hook. So let's, but, let's um, talk about other metal mashups that, that, that everybody was really excited about. No offense. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. As I remember correctly, Jimmy Iovine bet the company store and his mom and dad's grandpa's farm on um, rap metal. And who gives a hoot about corn right now and Limp Biscuit? They're done. They're a joke. They're yeah, a laugh. That's true. You know, and I'm not trying to disrespect J-pop at right. all. What I like about that whole phenomenon and what I know about it is very little, but I do know that a lot of the bands have an anime component. Yeah. And it's cross-media marketing. And that's what people can learn from and that's what people can emulate. Yeah. Like, for example, there's J-pop bands that will have a, a graphic novel and then there'll be that graphic novel will be busted out into small... Uh, like mini movies, basically, about the characters. And the singer in the band is not Bobby Ozinski, right? Or the, the singer is um, a, a, a mythological person. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, he, he or she has this whole backstory that is, that is displayed through the songs. And also, I know that, they, that they're very, very... The, the adoring fans of it are very, very into dressing like their characters yeah. and copying their hair and stuff. Well, you saw that. Well, With, yeah. Like Kiss. And like t- Kiss. Let me just tell you this. Was in the early days of Kiss. Because we'll wrap up the whole baby metal thing because I want to move on to something else. But the one thing I, I will tell you about that is I never saw, you know, nine-year-old, eight-year-old girls and their parents at a corn concert or at a Lip Biscuit True concert. That. And I never saw grandparents at, at a right. Lip Biscuit or corn. And I saw both. And it was cross-generational. And actually, 
I had a great time. So, Rob, did you did you bring your kids or did you go by yourself? No, no, no. I went with a friend, and it was it was just phenomenal. It was amazing. It was just it was the best <laughs> best concert. It's okay, great. Check and that it was, out. Then. But um, hey, but one of the things I want to segue into is being at the uh, at the concert. Um, it got me thinking about earplugs, and and I just want to tell you guys a little bit i i've i am really really anal about my ears i i I will take care of them because it's obviously it's it's my career and um i try a lot of different earplugs and i have a ton of different earplugs but i tried these live wires um um, earplugs and they were phenomenal they were so good how much are they it was like 20 bucks and and actually see being that we're in a, a video podcast I'm going to show you guys the, the mm. earplugs. See, my favorites are the Etymotic. Um, Those are good. But ETY20s. Now, what's good about these, you know, all these earplugs that are about the same, they're all basically made out of silicon, and then they have a little yeah. filter. Yeah. Filters are about 12 dB down, so if you're at 100, you're, you know, you're going down to like 88 or so. But what makes these really great is, is if you put the little string on, right, it... it it blocks the filter, so it becomes super, like, just this wall of nothingness. But then you can kind of loosen these up a little bit, and you can hear tones. So you don't feel like you're just totally locked off from the world. Mm. And and they work great. And afterwards, there was absolutely no fatigue at all. And sometimes when you, when you put the little spongy ones in there, it's no, just... No, I don't like those Yeah, all, it's like yeah. you have a head cold, and, and it gets... Not only that, the frequency response is so whacked up. Well, them. no, it's like... Yeah. <laughs> Who's the frequency response? I have fitted earplugs that were made for me by a, you know, by a medical practitioner, courtesy of your tax dollars. I got them through the VA. And uh, I have 60B and 12DB filters. And my whole thing about earplugs for a performing musician, if you wear them at soundcheck, wear them at the gig. Yeah. The other trick is if you don't wear them at soundcheck, don't <laughs> put them in at the gig. Yeah. Cause, and then the other thing is also experiment with using one at a time. And my recommendation is use the close the ear that is stage center. So if you're on the left side of the drums, wear an earplug in your right ear. That's right. If you're on the right side of the drums, wear an earplug in your left ear. It's, it's the, the symbols yeah. that will the symbols. All the It's time. the yeah. symbols that are give, give that'll. Yeah. Do you, Bobby, you wear earplugs all the time when you're at concerts and things like that? Uh, as much as I can remember to bring them, yeah. But uh, I. I even wear them on recording sessions because a lot of times people want you to crank up the sound and I don't want to go that loud. But the other thing is when you have to come out and you have to hear a drummer hitting the snare drum as loud or or a guitar player, the the only way that you can do it is have earplugs and maintain Uh, your sanity. Really quick, the name of the earplugs were called Live Music Hearsafe Earplugs. I said Live Wire. That's actually... It's actually this. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, they, uh, they, they were awesome. I cannot recommend them. Okay, you know, I gotta give them a try. And, and really, you know, I, what was amazing was how many people that I saw sitting around and they didn't have any, there was no ear protection Oh, at of all. course not, yeah. And I was like, man. And their ears are still ringing. Oh, probably. Well, it especially was, children under the age of 16, the follicles in your ears grow out this way. Yeah. Like, weren't. What happens is, is with volume, they get knocked down this way. And they don't and come back sometimes. Sometimes they don't come back before the age of 18, if they, before 16. And also that, those, those follicles deter, are, are what the brain uses to sense formants. Yeah. 
on the on, you know the, the character, the timbre of sound. Yeah. So uh, I have hearing loss. I'm very open about it. I wear I wear hearing aids occasionally when I'm working. I use my hearing aids. Sometimes I just open up the the, the battery chambers and they make great earplugs. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. I wear I wear one. Sometimes I wear two. Hmm. Uh, I sometimes. And my hearing loss is from playing in bands as an adolescent. And when I was in the military, I had to wear these really crappy earbuds. I was a combat air traffic controller, and that really – so it, that's why I have a disability, one of the reasons I have disability through the VA. But, Rob, that's what you were too, right? An air traffic controller? Me? <laughs> <laughs> that's where you are right now at Kennedy. <laughs> he's at Kennedy at work right now. That's why he's in New York. Yeah, you, you, did, you did it for Stevie, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, different kind of air traffic control. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Rob, earbuds. I mean, ear earplugs. Do you uh, you wear them a lot? Do you wear them at all the concerts? And um, yeah, I do. I hate uh, that feeling after a concert where you feel your head still like it feels like your head is compressed or like someone has their thumbs in your ears because you've taken you know you've had so much damage. I don't like that feeling at all. So yeah, I uh, I. Yeah, I usually carry around a pair in my pocket just for emergencies, you know, and, I, and they're just a the little spongy kind. So every now and then I have to remember to replace them because they get kind of nasty. But gross. Uh, yes. I don't carry fancy ones around, but yeah, I do. I do use them. And when I used to tour with Stevie, especially in the earlier years, I would be sitting right next to the PA, and it was often a PA that was feeding you know fifty thousand people, and I'm like a foot from it. So uh, I learned the value of earplugs pretty early back then. I'll tell you what. Um, on my very first gig that I was a drum tech for Striper way back in the day, the very first show, I did not wear earplugs. Oh. And being a drum tech and being that close, and, and Bob Sweet had this amazing monitor rig because that was the heavy metal days where they, they, they didn't want to hear the drums, they wanted to feel the drums. Mm. It, it was like getting kicked in the butt every time he like, like hit the, uh, the bass drum pedal. I have never had my ears ring as much as then. And it was like, it, it was so bad that, at Tommy. I just needed to do it one time. And, and it was like. It's very interesting it's the, different, the different takes, different drummers. I'm very fortunate. I've, I've had the uh, honor and the pleasure of playing with a very, very broad range of drummers. And um, the striper connection is all. Drummers and, and monitors is a very fascinating thing. You know, how some of them insist on having a thumper now, the, the seat that they sit on. Have yeah. you seen those, yeah. you guys? Yeah. I have one. I keep on meeting right. Yeah, the thumper it. that just hits yeah. their butt when they hit the bass yeah. drum. And then some of them have a floor. I've played with drummers that actually have a resonant floor that they want their their their, their, on. their, yeah. their whole and their feet and everything, which is bizarre to me. And then... Uh, but the striper situation is very interesting because Brian McLeod, a great studio drummer who's a wonderful guy, and I owe most of my career as a studio musician to Brian's recommendations early on, he always wanted to start a ironic striper tribute band, but call it <laughs> Stiper, and it would be REM versions of striper songs and metal <laughs> versions of REM songs. And uh, you'd have a Rickenbacker guitar, but you would dress like bees or something because striper dressed like bees it was fascinating he had this whole striper concept that he wanted to do my rem covering striper and striper covering rem and You're funny yeah he's a very funny guy yeah. but anyway yeah so i just i was just amazed and i just want to encourage you if you're out there and you go to a concert 
just put some protection in there because you know what? Even baby metal is not worth losing your hearing for. So, um, baby metal. <laughs> um, but and there's also a couple other ones I want to say. Soundtight and Alpine um, also make really good uh, hearing protection, and um, and I've used those also. So it's really kind of cool. Hey, uh, we're going to segue on to something else really quick um, before the break, and this is all insider stuff, okay? And what we're going to mean it stays here. We're, we no, don't, no, no, we don't oh, it's just between Turn us the cameras off and a couple of hundred people, thousand people out there, but. Stuff's going down at Avid again, like bad stuff. Um, I Ooh, another detail. another round of, of some layoffs. Some people got got laid off, and the rumor is that they're getting okay. This is just between us, okay? That they're getting out of the hardware business altogether. Wow. I don't know if it's true, but I will say that my source is is pretty reliable. So I don't know, but. But it would not surprise me. I don't know if you've been watching their stock, but I kind of keep trapping their stock, and it's it's not exactly going up. And uh, and they're they're just they need some cash, and and it's so it's so expensive to be in the hardware business right now. And they're not selling as many of their build consoles as they say they're selling. And there's a lot of good DAWs that are just just chipping away man there's a whole generation like we've talked about on this podcast before that that just doesn't know pro tools and and i think they they focus so much on the high-end client they forgot their base they forgot their bottom client and it's not looking good for them you know um but i can tell you i'll name names on the, on the break sorry i can't do that right. <laughs> yeah. but uh rob have, what have you heard on that have you heard anything about uh, about them recently no i actually have not um, but you said there had been another round of layoffs. I actually don't know that I know anyone there anymore. So, uh, I mean, maybe one or two people, but I, it's amazing how that company has been decimated. And I mean, if they lose the hardware, it's not like as a software only product, Pro Tool is, Pro Tools is endlessly compelling. They're, they could easily be overtaken, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it- the good thing is, is if they open up Yukon and there's some really good third-party controllers, which there are, that would be pretty amazing. Well, I guess it depends, though, if they were to get out of hardware, what that would look like. The idea of letting releasing everything, you know, for as public standards. Uh, I don't know. I'd need to learn more about it because the hardware is really the thing that locks you into Pro Tools, especially on a big system, you know, on big systems. Yeah, you, you can't get into HD for less than five grand. I mean, so it's Yeah, and they're like, making a lot of money on the hardware. So if, if the hardware sales are down that far, it's it's just a really scary thing. And that's, and just so you guys know, this is purely speculation and rumor, but, you know, what's life unless we can have a little speculation and rumor? Well, I, I <laughs> anybody that I could call there to dig deeper, but uh, none of them are there anymore. <laughs> there you go, I... I <laughs> I rest my case, but uh, yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see what's going to happen with uh, with Pro Tools. I don't know. I on one hand, I'm like, I hope they can kind of keep it together. But in another hand, blow the whole thing up and let's just see what comes down. It's it's you know let's let's see what comes down. They can only get bigger and better. You know. I hope they do it by January, so I don't have to re up my subscription. <laughs> hey, I made a really good record. At a studio downtown, Noah Shane's studio, on a 3M 16-track 2-inch that you couldn't even punch on, and it was one of the most exciting things I have ever done. Wait, you couldn't punch in? No, you can't, because the, it's one of the old video machines. It's so slow. It was the machine that um, Johnny Cash 
made his his seminal not seminal but his big records on and blonde on blonde was done on it really yeah and we had to play everything live it was me and steven ferroni and an artist named boo ray and it's noah shane's studio downtown and i feel horrible i can't remember the name of the studio the heads were so far apart that you couldn't do a punch well you could, right. you could punch, but it was just way late. Yeah, it was and, just and way the late. machine goes kersplunk. Like you can actually hear the the the. <sighs> See now that to me that's that's exciting. That's like flying without a. That's like flying without it's a like net. It's like the old I mean, days. Yeah, it's the real well, thing. but I'll tell you, this is my experience today. What we're talking about and what 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 it does, how divisive it is. Jack White's building a pressing plant in Detroit. That's how strong his faith in vinyl is. Jack White's a smart guy, right? He has a play, he has a venue in Nashville. If you go to his club and he likes you, the band and stuff, they'll make a record, a live record of your show and press it for you and make well, sure that you get it. Well, I mean, we can talk a lot about vinyl because there's a, a lot of things coming down the pike that most people don't know that uh, I can tell you about but, as but, well. But, but what I, but my, my thing is, is that, that my experience is, is that what makes things most meaningful for people is a long-term relationship and Pro Tools, Avid, those people never encouraged long-term relationships with their end users. You know, that's a, that's a great point because they were always, I felt like you got, there was no benefit to staying with them forever. You know, there was no benefit. You always had to. Well, yeah, there was. The, the benefit was you, you'd be compatible with everybody else who had to be there. And... Yeah, but you never felt like the company like cared well, about you. Like they were, they were going to spiff you. Hey, you've been with us for um, 10 years. Oh, you've been with us so long that you've actually haven't updated the last three times. We're going to make it more expensive for you to update. Didn't they ever spiff you? Rob, did they, they spiffed you, right? Yeah, I was going to say, I actually had a very good, very personal relationship with them for many years, probably for 15, 20 years. I'm not even sure exactly how long, but um, I, I, and I'm sure it's because I was working on higher profile stuff and, and you know, I was able to help them with some publicity and things, but also because I sought out the relationship and really worked hard to just stay in touch and try to be helpful to them and they were helpful to me. And it was actually a very good relationship, but they have completely let all of that stuff stuff just completely slide. I, I don't even know who I'd contact there now. Right. But that was that Avid or was that DigiDesign? You know? It was both. It was both. It was Avid for a very long time. It if, was. I it, mean I was on the customer advisory board. I used to go to meetings uh, where they'd fill us in on future products and we'd have a say and you know be a bunch of high profile users and they were very interactive with us for a long time and um I wonder what it's, happened. I mean, literally. Well, all the people who organized those things got let go. Well, yeah. early on, if I may, early on, sure. a friend of mine and, and, and Bobby's, a friend of mine and Bobby's, who will remain nameless, was an insider there. He was, he was, um, he was, you know, one of the people that when they went from 16 bit to 20 bit, they already had 24 cooked, 24 bit, and he was at a business meeting one of those and and he said hey wait a minute why are we selling everybody 20 bit when we're gonna when we have 24 bit ready to go and they said shut up that's a you know that kind of thinking won't get you advanced here so they made people buy 20 bit that were eventually going to buy 24 bit when you do that to a customer right there's the wisdom of pop music kicks in bob marley someday the bottom will drop out yeah. hey, and that was way way back in the beginning yeah. when they actually had real people that were and that's ruthless to do that to your to your consumer base that ain't cool man hey, all I, uh, I bought two 20-bit adap bridges i suffered <laughs> that. hey all i can tell you is 
is they've never look special artists, things like Rob and stuff like that. Yes, they take care of it. But your average Joe, your average guy, I, I don't think they ever did enough for the people that were the most loyal to them. And like I said, to upgrade from version seven to version 10 was 2,500 bucks, but you could go from nine to 10 for 300 bucks. So, I mean, it's like stuff like that. It's like, look, they're on version seven, probably because they were working and it was working for a long time and they didn't want to mess it up. I know that's that was my situation. So now I'm ready to join and you're going to make me pay $2,500. That was just ridiculous. Anyway, hey, listen, we're going to take a break right now. And uh, when we get back, we're going to visit a little bit more with Paul. We're going to talk a little bit about your uh, bass playing and some of the artists you've well, worked with. And, I'm honored uh, and humbled to be in such a steam no, company. And you have, you've got some stories there, brother. I mean, you've got some great stories. So we're going to hear some more. So we'll see you on the other side. to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Westwave Audio. Have a question for the panel? Email us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back to the Audio Nowcast. And before the break... Wow, that was like a long break, so I kind of forgot what we were talking about. No, we were talking about Pro Tools and some rumors that uh, we've been hearing. Um, but um, really quick, before we do anything else, um, I've heard neglected to introduce uh, Miss Bliss McGinnis, who is the uh, producer of the Audio Nowcast 360. And it was actually her birthday yesterday, so happy birthday. Happy birthday, birthday to you. So, uh, yeah. That way, people are like, who's that person sitting there? So, anyway, but um, we're here over at Loki Sonic Studios. Um, we're doing the Audio Nowcast 360. We're doing our regular podcast. But um, I just wanted Paul to talk a little bit about this place because this place has a great vibe. I mean, this is like, like I was talking about in the very beginning, like rock and roll, um, a lot of rehearsal spaces, third encore, you know, SIR, places like that. And and just tell us a little bit about, about this place and, and some of the gear. Like, I understand your PA has a, as a, nice uh, history there well, oh yeah well the the, the pa is um it's easy top side fills from three or four years ago really the, the console is a pre-sonus console we're big pre-sonus supporters it's really functional it's really really good it sounds great uh we don't record through it we don't use their recording software but um it serves us very well um are the, those are Rankus Heinz speakers, and they're, they're, they're two full-range speakers aside and a subwoofer, correct, Bobby? That's right. And, Bobby, uh, the, the power amps, the challenge that we face here with this PA system is the amalgamation of monitors. If you notice, everything is a different brand and stuff, and the PA amplifiers are different brands, so it's very difficult to get any consistency across it. I was a front-of-house guy haplessly. I stumbled into that profession at the knitting factory in, in L.A., for about four or five years around the 9-11 time. And uh, so the the room sounds, people like to play here. We have a really diverse clientele. We're essentially private. The principal owner is a wonderful drummer named Mark Orenberger. And then Bobby's kind of our silent partner and technical consultant. And like he who wears the fez, he's kind of like the guru. And uh, I'm just one of the guys that's a partner here that has some gear here. We have 14 vintage drum sets, probably eight or nine, well, no, six bass rigs. We're kind of weak on 
on, we have a fairly good collection of vintage guitar amplifiers. I play in a band called Disreputable Few. We're a jam band, and uh, we're like a psychedelic blues band. And um, uh, one of our guitar players keeps his uh, vintage, Randy Ray Mitchell, studio musician, keeps his vintage guitar amplifier collection upstairs, which is pretty extensive. And we're private. We don't really advertise. We're word of mouth. People like the size of the room. It's 24 by 20, 24 by 30 by 24. There's a lounge over there. There's a kitchen over there. The control room isn't tuned. We have very little by... Most of my peers have 10 times the gear we have, but we managed to make pretty good recordings here because of the persons that are involved. Like when Bobby tracks a band here, there it's it's a Bobby recording. When um, Chris Wanzer tracks a band here, band here, another producer. Jack Douglas uses this room for pre-production a lot. He's never recorded, but he loves bringing artists here because of the physical space and the fact that it's it's like a it's a hang, it's a clubhouse. My band, we call it the, the clubhouse. And we, the guys love to come over here and play. They come over here and just tweak their amps. My guitar players will set up half a dozen amplifiers in the middle of the day when, when we're not rehearsing and just compare uh, Klon Stompbox, Klon Centaur Stompbox clones through. Right. Like, how does it sound through a Fender Deluxe? How does it sound through my old Marshall? How does it sound through a Bandmaster? How does it sound through my Vox AC30? So we're, we're really incredibly non-competitive. We're not uh, mercantile. We're... We're more about, we have parties here. Our band will we'll have like two other bands play with us and we'll have 100 people here on a bad night, 250 people here on a good night. And when we try to promote a show in a venue, right, and use social media to promote a show, we won't get near those numbers. People just like to come here and hang. Well, it's, a, it's a great hang though. This has like personality, but this place has such a great vibe and, and I understand the appeal. This is like, you want to hang and you want to just play with your friends and, and just jam. And this, this just has a really cool feel about that. Hey, tell us about this little... Uh... Oh, the double neck? It's a, it's a double neck. It's a piccolo bass on top and a, and a standard 34 inch scale bass on the bottom. It was built for me by someone who I swore I wouldn't say built it because he doesn't want to build any more double necks for people, but he's one of the prominent guys in L.A. Uh, the pickups in the, in the neck position are called Dark Stars. They're, they're copies by a guy named Fred Hammond of the original Hagstrom pickups that were on Jack Cassidy's Guild Starfire bass. Barry Oakley put them on his jazz basses in the Allman Brothers after the first record, and also Phil Les used them on, if I could only remember my name, the David Crosby solo album, which is probably one of the greatest unsung audio it's an amazing record not only the bass playing but it's always on my top 10 list the first david crosby solo album it's wally Hyder. they did it around the same time the dead were doing like um not american beauty but um the other one uh working man's dead wow and uh, the back pickups or i mean the neck pickups are the bridge pickups are, are the new fender humbuckers and i um and i i i play piccolo bass a lot in the last five years um, for songwriting and stuff, and I use different tunings on it. Right now, it's set up in just an octave above this neck, so that's what that is. It's pretty awesome. Hey, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, about your career and how how you got started. I mean, I read a little bit about you, and you've played with a lot of great great artists, and you've you've done a lot of stuff. Tell us a little bit about your backstory. About what your backstory? Oh, um, well. Like so many people, I'm 60 years old. So many people in my age group, I'm left-handed. My name's Paul. Uh, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I watched my older sister and two girls freak out and lose it. And I had already been across the Atlantic twice because my dad was in the military. And I thought, wow, these guys are from Liverpool. I had actually been to Liverpool Harbor on, a, on, a, on the SS United States 
with my family on one of our transatlantic trips. I knew the logistics involved from getting somebody from England to the United States. And like any young boy, I knew it was very important to have the adulation of the opposite sex. And I grew up in a very musical household because of my older sister. She was a prenatal piano player. She was born knowing how to play the piano. That's her piano right there. That's a Schiedmeier piano from the early 50s, from Stuttgart with a Renner action. People love that piano. That's one Edgar, Edgar Winters, one of his favorite pianos in L.A. Wow. When he comes here to rehearse, he loves that piano. But anyway, um, he's never recorded. He just loves playing it. Um, my sister was born knowing how to play the piano. She had a phonographic memory. She taught herself how to play guitar. Over one summer, she taught herself all the songs on Rubber Soul using a Mel Bay chord book in her ears. She's the best musician I've ever known, objectively. Hmm, yeah. She's good as Kevin Gilbert. He was pretty good. He was really good. Wow. Like, that good. Um, and so I grew up in a, in a, encouraged by my parents. They weren't particularly musical. They were just very encouraging. So I wanted a bass. I insisted on having one. So I got one. And I started playing like everybody else, Gloria, Louie, Louie, Wild Thing, Garage Bands. With my friends, I had a Harmony 420 amplifier. I think it was 16L6 or 26L6s with a 15-inch speaker back, open back bass amp. Really weird. I wish I had one right now. Probably sound really good for guitar. Um, and I just, you know, the culture allowed for me at that time to just play as much music as I wanted to play. And there weren't that many people playing, so we were in high demand. My first paying gig was a seventh grade dance. The band, we each made $5, which was really big money. And I can remember the set list. We, we, we couldn't figure out the bridge to Sunshine of Your Love. We, we hadn't discovered the four chord yet or the five chord, but we could go boo-doo-doo-doo for you know, a long time to, to play the riff. And I remember people complaining, the dancers were like, you gotta go to the next part of the song. <laughs> Like we would, we played "Light My Fire," you know. And we just knew the two chords, the first part. But and a dear friend of mine to this day, Marcus Benoit, uh, a sax player and keyboard player, he lives in upstate New York. He would just—he was already into Coltrane and Eric Dolphy and all that stuff. So he would just like wax prolific on top of two chords. And also, we another thing that ran parallel to the standard play so that people can dance tradition that I came up in entertain you are not there to have an experience for you you're there to provide a service to those people that can dance and then by the age of 16 and playing in bars in Florida it was you're there to make sure that venue sells enough liquor to where they'll have you back the next week so the whole function was essentially service right of a musician musician being of service to a community providing a backdrop for people to gather and musician as a bass player is life of essentially service to other musicians. You have, you're, you're essentially selfless. You have to be or you're not going to be happy. Right. You better be, as a bass player, willing to do what other people want to do and do it over and over and over again. Or you're not going to be a happy guy. Unless, you know, you, there, there are some exceptions to that. So I started pretty much like everybody else. I was too hyperkinetic to take lessons. Uh, my parents sent me to Peabody Conservatory. We moved a lot. I went to high school in three different countries. Wow. I went to junior high in two different countries. I went to a five grade schools and kindergartens in, in three different states. And I was just too... They sent me to Peabody, to, and I lasted two weekends in the preparatory conservatory with my sister. They, the teachers couldn't handle me. I was too hyperkinetic. Wow. So I did most of my music at home, right, or with friends. And then I, I insisted on going to music school after high school, uh, and like it was a, the best time to come of age, I think, because I was a working musician very, very young. In high school in Cocoa Beach in 11th and 12th grade, we were 
I got very, very lucky. I dropped right down into the outer circle of the Allman Brothers band, and it was right before Dwayne died. It was, it was um, that, that, that summer, the summer of Layla, right before Live at the Fillmore was recorded, right then. And I met these guys that were five, six years older than me that had been in competitive bands with the Allman Brothers and that had known them. You know, and uh, there's a certain certain standard of excellence uh, and of and of 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 of, um, of this wonderful place where dance music meets improvisation. That's why I like the jam band world so much, where you're providing a service, you're gathering a tribe. Your primary purpose has nothing to do with who you are, right? You're there to allow people to have an emotional experience, so that when they leave the venue, they'll feel better about the world around them then your secondary purpose is to make sure that venue can stay open, mm. right? Sell tickets, sell booze. Right. And, and, I, and that combined with the great fortune of, of being born at a time when people were actually allowed to improvise. I'm ethically opposed to the pop song format. I've, I, it just doesn't... I have ethical oppositions to it, not moral, not spiritual, not aesthetic. I just... I don't believe in the pop song format as a... As I, I know why it works, but I'm more of the... Miles Davis, Frank Zappa, wow, uh, Greg Allman. Greg Allman writes a song, but it ain't a pop tune. And I tell you, Greg Allman won the Classic Rock Music Lifetime Achievement Award the first time Classic Rock Magazine did their uh, awards here in L.A. And I got to go uh, as a guest of Matt Sorm. I play in one of his side bands, a band called Fierce Joy. And Matt has taught me a whole lot about music and about what we do. We have a charity called Adopt the Arts, and we put music programs in K-6 through schools around L.A. because there's no, there's no public music, uh, there's no money for public school, money for, for music in right. public schools, K-6. through So we put on benefits every year, and we, we have three schools. We want to have six by the end of this year. But uh, at, that vet, at that thing, when Greg Allman took his award, he said, you know, I'm completely flattered and humbled, and I'm paraphrasing. But he said, I'm completely flattered and humbled that you're giving me this award of all the American musicians you could have given it to. And in the audience was Eric Idle, Jeff Lynne, Ozzy Sharon Osbourne, like a lot of heavy hitters, right. man. You know? And he said to an audience of his peers, he said, you know, um, I got three broken hearts. I get choked up thinking about it. He said, what we do is we heal broken hearts. That's our primary job here as musicians. And he said, my hope is that our generation allows for enough opportunity for the next generation of musicians to play enough music so that they have that opportunity too. Mm. Because I think the whole focus on the narcissism of social media and the, and the, and the need for everybody to survive has basically, it's done two things. It's, it's shifted people away from, it's united a lot of people that normally wouldn't unite and it serves a very, very good purpose. But, Frankly, um, if you're not in it to help people, you're in it for the wrong reason. And I'm not a saint, and I'm not suggesting that I don't want to have even more success than I've had in the past. I've had, actually, by most people's standards, not that much. I've just hung in there. I'm just tenacious. But I will tell you that if your band or your songs or your technical expertise, your artistry as a recording engineer or a studio musician or as a producer, if you can find a way to serve a community and wake up every morning going, how can I make the world around me a better place by creating sonic phenomena? You'll start healing people and you'll start seeing healing in yourself 
and you'll start the, the, the troubles and the tri- trials and the tribulations of the world around you will become far less important to you. And that's really what this is all about. You know what? I just got to tell you, as you were talking, I was trying to find a place to jump in, but you kept on saying so many good things. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to interrupt that. I, that's, it's so true. It is, it's so true. And, and you know what? This place kind of shows that type of mentality because it's a place. You get 250 it's, it's people. A gathering. Yeah, it's a you, place of gathering. This is the place you in gotta LA. You got to invite me to a party sure, the next time. This I, I want to come. This is the place in LA where 250 people will come to listen to musicians play E minor seven for 10 minutes. That's awesome. And just space jam. They don't give a hoot about whether it's a hit record or not. Well, let's, Let's move a little forward, and and we got to talk about when you met Mr. Bobby O ha, over here, Berkeley. Bobby was running the recording department with with and and I met Bobby, and he just was mystifying. He was really good at everything. He was a great guitar player, great keyboard player. He went from student to faculty. For all of Berkeley's shortcomings, they're smart. They turn good students into faculty members like that. They turn them real quick. And they put them on the on the on the on their pay. Do you remember that day when you met him? Oh yeah, yeah. He, well, we had an MCIA track, one inch A track, and a console. That's why I went to Berkeley. It was the only school at the time that had a recording studio in it. Yeah, you, Bobby you was. Us, you want to add anything about the uh, the first time you met uh, Paul? Well, the thing about Paul is he's always been a spectacular musician. And it would it, his vibe would stand out. I mean, no matter what, the, the, there's a vibe, and then there's the musicianship. Uh, and I still think Paul has been, you know, really the best musician all the way around that I've ever met. Oh, Bobby, that's very kind wow. of you. You got to understand something, guys. I got to interject. The bass players at Berkeley when I was a bass player there as a bass player were Jimmy Earl, the guy that was a classmate of mine, who's the Kimmel bass player, who smokes me, right? Tim Landers, who's a, you know, a fusion genius. Neil Steubenhaus was one of my teachers. He went from student to teacher, so I don't have the chops any of those guys. No, no, but it's not a chops thing, though. Well, I'm the only guy that yeah. plays a P bass with flat one three strings through a B15. Well, you're the, <laughs> only, the only guy that plays a piccolo bass, too, with, well. with the slide. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, I appreciate what you're saying. Thank hey, you. let me ask you a question. Let's, let's move a little forward, um, mainly because for time, but let's talk about some of the people you've played with. Oh, okay, the, I'll tell you. The top two? Willie yeah. Dixon Family Band and Tina Turner. Really? Flat out. How was it playing with, uh, with either one of those? Well, Willie Dixon Family Band was his wake. It was one gig. But you, I, I hate to be that guy. I'm not harping on it was better back then or any of that stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. But the legacy of Willie Dixon, Willie Dixon is like Chuck Berry or Chuck D or Tupac. These are poets that are going to be remembered for hundreds of years. And that's what we tend to lose sight of is the narrative the story that people want to tell the feeling in the room is 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 determined by a person's presence if you walk into a room saying i'm going to tell a story that i hope resonates with someone if there's ten thousand people in that room and you're playing at a festival or you're making a record that you hope goes on the radio you got to hope that your story resonates and it, if it's meant to resonate with 10 it'll resonate with 10 if it's meant to resonate with 100 granted 10,000 100,000 a million the Willie Dixon family band, Jed Ojeda, who runs the Mint, called me. He goes, can you play 
uh, upright good enough to, to play blues standards stuff. And I said, yeah, I'm not that good of an upright player, but I can do it. He goes, I really need you on Sunday. Will you come to the Mint during the afternoon and sub for me? I said, are we going to rehearse? He said, no, just bring that in one of your Fender basses. And I showed up and I walked in, I looked around, and it was like 90% African-American people and Jed... And Jed was running sound and kind of being the master of ceremony. And everybody was like, hi, how's it going? Nice to meet you. I'm Paul. Oh, yeah. Where are you from? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm Sarah. I'm from Chicago. Oh, that's nice. Oh, I'm, I'm Bob. I'm from Chicago. I'm thinking, well, most of these people are from Chicago. I go, what are we doing? Okay. We just started playing. I am not kidding. They just said, let's play. And we get up and we went, boom, 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 Started Spoonful, right? Started another Willie Dixon song. I'm just playing. And then... Played eight or nine songs, eight, talked to everybody. And I said, hey, Jeff, what is this? He goes, man, this is Willie Dixon's wake. You're coming to the funeral, right? And then B.B. King spoke at the funeral, right? That kind of experience of being around that, no money, didn't get paid. Well, it, what it, what it, for me, for a guy who came up, I discovered Willie Dixon through cream, you know, I didn't know what a Willie Dixon was, a fresh cream, right? And then my sister sent me that record from the States. I'd get a care package from her. I was living in Germany. I'm looking at fresh cream. Whoa, these guys look cool, right? Put it on. Whoa, oh my God, Jack Bruce, a force of nature. You know, Clapton at that time. Whoa. How old was he, 23? Smoking, you know? Um, and Ginger Baker, another force of nature, right? <laughs> Ginger Baker. At that time, a force of nature, Still literally more than a drummer. <laughs> A force of nature. These people changed popular culture. They changed the way people think and feel, right? So, and then I go, what's a Willie Dixon? And my, so I went to the base library and I looked up, you know, in the card catalog, I started cross-referencing. There was a coffee table book of famous Chicago people, like Mayor Daly or whatever, and they had Willie Dixon in it. They had the Chess Brothers in it. It was a coffee table book of wow. famous Chicago people. And that's how I found that stuff, through British blues artists. And I was real lucky because I would say to my mom, hey, I'm going to a concert at Deutsches Theater, Mom. And that was like Carnegie Hall in downtown Munich. And she'd go, oh, that's nice, son. Who's performing? i go, oh, an American composer named Frank Zappa. A tricker, and she go, "Oh, that's nice. Enjoy yourself." So I'm be home by eleven. You know, I saw a lot of the really good seminal British blues bands at Munich Pop Festival in 1970. I, in two nights, I saw Free. When, excuse me, Andy Fraser was still 16 or 17 years old, right? They were all teenagers still. Yeah, yeah but but oh, wait, go, go back to Tina Turner. Oh, go back. I'm sorry, yeah. Tina. That experience was beyond belief. Brian McLeod introduced me to um, Guy Chambers, who was a staff record producer at Capitol in Europe, in England. And what year, what time period was this? This 2007, 2008. And uh, Tina Turner was getting ready to kind of retire. And uh, Guy had written some songs with her, and Guy had asked her who she wanted to write with, and she said the dude from Train, the Drops of Jupiter dude, who, forgive me, I forget his name. So Guy is responsible for the success of Robbie Williams all around the world. And Guy was in... World Party and the Water Boys. He's really, really good keyboard player and guitar player. A wonderful man, adoring father and husband. He's got four kids and a great dude. And he's really, really good musician. He's like kind of Kevin Gilbert good in his own way. And a great record producer. And uh, he uh, he asked me and Brian to go to England to play with um, Tina Turner live, record with her live at his studio. And back in those days, you got to stay at a nice hotel. You know, you got first class flights <laughs> across the pond. 
you know, and it was, it was special because we tracked the tunes with Guy and just the three of us. And then um, she said, he said, okay, I'm going to play him for Tina. If she likes the vibe, we'll see where it goes. You guys just stay close to uh, Ladbroke, no, 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 Primrose Hill, the neighborhood. And we said, okay, we'll stay close. So I'm in a coffee shop the next day sitting in. He goes, where are you? And I said, I'm close. I can walk back to the studio. He goes, good, come back. She wants to play live with you guys. So we just tracked with her. We, re- we cut the songs live, no click track through one of those old EMI consoles with the elliptical faders, one of the Abbey Road consoles that was on a truck. The Beatles never recorded through it or Pink Floyd. Wow. In Guy's personal studio, you know, which not, not this much real estate because it's London. Yeah. Smaller than this, lower ceiling. And we got to do, I think we did five songs. We just played the live set down. This, we played it like we were doing a gig with her and she just sang the song. She, didn't, she had all the lyrics memorized. You know, she didn't, she didn't have a teleprompter or a prompt sheet or an iPad or a music stand. She knew the tunes. She didn't write the tunes and she knew them. She sang them down top to bottom. Wow. And we did the, we just did it like a live gig three times. And that was the record. The record hasn't been released yet. I bet eventually it'll be in a box that it'll be, it was supposed to be half of her last record. And there was hope that we would be, that guy would be her musical director and maybe we would get to tour with her, but that never manifested. She did one huge mega Coliseum farewell tour after that. Wow. So that music hasn't come to the light of day. But being in the same room with her because of her Buddhist practices, she had, she, when her musical director transitioned, the guy that was with her forever, this keyboard player, he lived in West Hollywood. She came by herself without a personal assistant and packed up his personal belongings for his family. That's the kind of person Tina Turner is. She stopped her life and, you know, packed up his stuff for the grieving family. Wow. Closed up his estate. You know, and that's that's why these things are really important to me. Not because they sold a lot of records. Nobody knows about it. It never came out. It's just like the Willie Dixon gig. The only people that saw it were the Willie Dixon's family. But in my bios and stuff, the reason that they're important to me is because of the emotional value of it, and also the fact that we have a responsibility to the next generation of people that come to make sure that they understand that. Music is a whole lot more about a narcissistic experience, about staring into your phone and looking at some incredibly attractive genetic lottery winner who's barely wearing any clothes undulate to the next groovy beat, you know, because that's always going to have a place in our culture. That's part of our rite of passage. But there's some there's forces far more powerful. I'm telling you, they're far more powerful. Music is the most powerful healing and unifying force. Carlos Santana says the greatest force in the universe is enthusiasm. And when you have two like-minded people joined together on a good idea, watch what happens. You know, it's proven. It, 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 time and time again, music is the most powerful, unifying, and healing force in the world. It's never been used to divide people, ever. It doesn't work as a divisive force. You can't do it. Wow. That's pretty amazing. That is just... That's pretty amazing, Paul. That's, you've, you've had... I can tell you have a lot of thought behind music and, and modern music. And, and unfortunately, we're, we're coming up against the clock. But, but um, wow, I can, I can only imagine and I hope someday to hear those, the recordings that you did with. Well, with I hope so too. I'll ask Guy. The bottom line <laughs> is there's no other reason to do this anymore. Right. That's you can't thing. really monetize it. Like we thought we were going to be able, well, some of us can, but I mean, we all hang in there. Those. And then remember Daniel Levitin, you guys read his book? 
This Is Your Brain on Music? No. He's a heavy. He's a B-division record producer that became a neuroscientist. He's a, got a PhD from Stanford in neurobiology or whatever. Yeah. There's a, he estimates 7.5% of the population in the West, in a utilitarian population, if you got if you got free time, about seven and a half of us percent of us think and feel in Technicolor when we talk about music or hear it or experience it. That's us, yeah. these people. That's we're do, the ones. Do you know he's also a Berkeley boy? Yeah, he's a Berkeley guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, yeah, I didn't know that until right now. Figures. You know, it, it's amazing because just thinking back to the concert that I went to and and how here was this band with competing genres that were melded together through music. Singing in a language that I don't know, that I didn't really matter because it was still amazing. And, it was a peak experience. And, and yeah. to be able to bring humanity and the, just the broad demographic of people that were there, music is just, that's why I love music. Music is magical. Music is magic. Music can do some amazing things and it, it can choke me up. I, I, I posted a, a video of my son um, who's autistic. Um, and he was singing. I recorded him when he was eight years old singing um, Blackbird with a good friend of mine. And I'm so glad I did. My friend Mark came over to my studio and, and he was, his son was playing the guitar. And, so, and Andrew was there and he was, like, he was like, can I sing? And so he was singing with Mark. And, and I listened to it today. <laughs> And I can still get choked up yeah, because choked up right because it's so powerful, and and I think that's what's amazing about music, and that's and and that's what's amazing about a place like this. I can tell that some fun times have been had here. I'm looking forward to coming and visiting sometime when you're having more fun times. Well, and you. if it wasn't for the fact that we were up against the clock, I I'd, I'd want to stay here all night and listen to some more stories. Well, but, thank um, you for saying that. That's very thoughtful. But um, anyway. Um, Thank you so much for allowing us to come in here Peace. and for, for talking and for Bobby for setting this up and, and for Rob for staying away. Rob, Silent Rob. <laughs> Poor Rob in New York. Uh, no, it's like because Silent Rob is definitely not my normal nickname. <laughs> well, uh, that's true. He's normally the Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast. But, you know, before we go, um, Rob, are you working on anything that you, you want to talk about or you can talk about? or? Um. Not so much in specifics. I'm traveling like crazy, which is why I'm here right now. I've been hopping in and out of L.A., but I actually have some people uh, uh, using my facility now, which is good. It's not just sitting there uh, unloved and unwanted when I'm traveling, so I've been working hard to make that happen. And I actually just got a call to produce uh, some material for a young artist who I actually worked with a few years ago when she was incredibly young. And it's music that, Mike, you might like and Paul would probably weep because it represents everything. <laughs> but uh, she's talented and she's actually become a bit of a TV star. And when I started working with her, it was before she had anything take off. And so she was, as a kid, she was deciding between music and acting and went more down the acting road, even though her talent, I think, was more naturally in music. And she's been very successful with the acting, done some TV and movies and stuff, and now wants to do music. And so they contacted me out of the blue a few days ago and it's one of these things where i i don't have any free time but i'm going to try to find some free time because it'll actually be fun that's awesome nice that's great um bobby are you uh, working on anything that you can talk about or you want to plug or i'm busy with lots lots of stuff but i'll talk about it next time okay all right. Hey, by the way, just we got to plug your your uh, your mixing tips and tricks and stuff like that because uh, every once in a while I see a little reference to that and that's just some gems. Oh, you know? thanks. One hundred and one mixing tricks. It's a course that I did, and 
people are loving it. So I'm, I'll I'm tell you, happy. I've heard some stuff, and and I just encourage everybody if you want to get really good knowledge fast, that's the way to go. It's pretty darn awesome. Um, Paul, how about you? Is there anything you're working on that you want to plug or you want to? Sure. Um, right now, uh, I have the honor and the pleasure of playing with Steve Ferroni from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers nice. in a band called the Kenneth Bryan Band. Kenneth and Travis Stevens are two gentlemen from uh, Gainesville, Florida and Charleston, West Virginia, respectively. They are the real deal, salt of the earth. They've been on tour with Lucinda Williams for quite a few years off and on. And we ostensibly are opening for ZZ Top in October. It's booked, but you know how these things can unravel. That's a lot of fun. I've learned so much playing with Steve. He's a very stern taskmaster. But, you know, you're sitting with him and you go, hey, Steve, what about that Freddie King record, The Burglar? Let's talk about that. You go, oh, shucks, man. He was, whoa, whoa, you know, well, that's that, Steve. <laughs> that's fun. And then um, I'm very proud to say that uh, Disreputable Few, my band with Randy Mitchell, Mark Tremaglia, and Dan Petrouche, which is a psychedelic blues jam band, our first full-length record is officially done. Our incredibly... Very, very carefully designed social media campaign is about to drop. We have the help of Matt Sorm. He's been mentoring us on how to do that correctly and do it in a way that is suits our ethics and standards. We we saw an EPK this morning that was uh, done by an Emmy Award-winning sports video television editor. And uh, we're real excited about it. If I may help any of you, the thing that we're doing is we have a three-and-a-half, uh, two-and-a-half-minute EPK that features three record, three studio recordings, but live footage going back three years edited to that, to the studio recordings that can be cut into 15 to 30 second little mini movies for Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and stuff. So we can blast that stuff. So I'm real, real excited about it because we've worked really, really hard and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I really, really enjoy doing. Um, after the podcast, you should uh, talk to Bliss. She's uh, worked on tens and tens and tens and fifties and EPKs. That's basically fancy it. that production coordinator. Life simple pleasures. Yes. So, <laughs> um, how about you, Mike? What are you working on? Oh man i I have probably the most packed summer that I've ever had. And I cannot say one thing about it. <laughs> um, none of it's music, though. It's all it's all film. But um, it's really great. It's really fun. And uh, as this stuff rolls out, uh, it'll it'll you'll hear about it. But it's it's to say I'm busy. I mean, it's unbelievably like it's crazy. It's fun though. You, you guys ever get in the time where you're like so inundated by stuff you love to do that that it's just it seems like it's an impossible task, but yet you're having the best time doing it. You know, it's kind of yes, like, right now. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. I bet you, Rob, you feel that way. Times ten. <laughs> Me too. See, I think that's the thing. Yeah. The thing about people who achieve and do stuff is they love it. Like, like they love doing this stuff. I mean, I can honestly say, like, when I get busy, I love it. I, I just feel alive, and, I, and and you just take one little thing at a time, and as you accomplish it, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think another thing that that I've I've noticed. When I stray from it, I'm not comfortable. But when I see the people around me that I go, gee, I, I like them. I like their demeanor, like the three, the four of you and stuff, is that 
if I stay in the footwork business and stay out of the results business, I'm okay. <laughs> when I get into attaching a projecting a result on yeah. what I want to see manifest, yeah. I'm in trouble. If I just do the footwork, do the next appointed task, I tend to have a good time. Well, hey, we're going to wrap up. Um, if you have any comments or questions for us, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. Hey, really quick, Paul, I'm just going to put you on the spot. When we're done with the podcast, will you, will you play this thing for me? Yeah, sure. All right. See, you heard it. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, Rob, uh, have, uh, have a safe flight back, and hopefully we'll see you on the next podcast. I want to... Th- I want to thank uh, Christy McConville. She's here with us too in the control room. Hey, I want Christy. to thank Bliss for helping us out once again on the uh, on the video side. Yeah, so, if you have any comments or questions, once again, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. And by the way, on the Audio Nowcast 360, you know what? We're kind of winging this, so just be patient with us. There was a whole there was a whole orientation flip on the last one. So, <laughs> so you know, we're learning. With the 360 camera, we're learning which way's front. <laughs> so bear with us; it's getting better, and uh, and we'll see what happens the next time. So thanks for listening, and thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time. See Sponsored by API and West Wave Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and uses Aphex's 230 Master Channel Voice Processor. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>